You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. Salonier and writer Damien Barr introducing his session on the 1980s. Good evening. Hello. You can applaud. Applause is good. Applause is very, 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 very good. Yes, good evening and uh, welcome, welcome back to the 80s. Um, you will have seen, you can see in the background um, the 80s flashing by. Some of you might have more memories up on the screen than you do have in your head, depending on which end of the 80s uh, you joined them. I'm be drinking champagne on stage tonight. Um, and in the tradition of the 80s, somebody else is paying, which is lovely. Um, I'm sure that I will be bailed out in due course um, by the government. Um, so anyway, it's very nice to be here this evening. You can, uh, you can almost stop the slideshow. Um, I am here to, to host a special literary salon with three very special guests. Um, before I introduce them, I'm just going to tell you a tiny wee bit about me. This time last year, um, I came to Names Not Numbers for the first time. Um, and I read for the very first time um, from my book, um, Maggie and Me, um, which happens to be out in paperback next week, casually. <laughs> Casually just going to mention that. Maggie would want me to mention that. Um, I really think that she would, because of course the Maggie in question is Maggie Thatcher. She's not on the cover of the paperback because market research um, showed that certain people wouldn't want to be seen um, reading her on the tube. Oops. Um, so there was a kind of Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon where it sold really well on Kindle um, because people didn't want to be seen holding Maggie. And more than that, having any kind of emotional response to her um, in public was something that people were quite challenged by. But, um, Anyway, I came, I thought that was Jimmy Savile. <laughs> that actually gave me the fear. That actually gave me the fear. It's like, Jimmy Savile is behind me. I'll tell you who that is in a minute. Um, well, anyway, so, um, so, the, the, so my book is, um, my book is a, a child of names, not numbers. Um, and I'm a child of Thatcher, whether I like it or not. Um, and this is me. There I am. Oh, there I've gone. I'll be back. There I am. Um, that's me on the left with my sister, who looks like a doll, but is actually real. Um, and she's having a strawberry mevy. Um, and I'm wearing some very early Kath Kidston pyjamas, which I think we can all admire enormously. Um, very flammable, they were. And both my parents smoked. Um, so... It's just the beginning of it. Um, but anyway, uh, and you can tell in the background, this is in Scotland, and um, the, 80s, the, the 80s hadn't quite happened yet. It's very much still a 70s colour scheme. Um, there's a lot of orange and a lot of brown, um, which we were very excited by. So that's me and my sister on the left, Teeny. Um, Teeny is now one of the most senior uh, women in the fire service in Scotland. She's Commander Barr. Very exciting. So, yeah. Uh, and that, that is me on the right. Um, with my pink guitar, which I think was a taste, perhaps, of what was to become of me <laughs> in terms of my musical gifts, obviously. Um, and I, I, it was only when it became this size that I noticed the boy crying in the background and thought, it's, I had nothing to do with that. Um, I didn't make him cry. Um, but that's me, when I'm a, that's me when I'm a little bit older. Um, and in fact, that, that's me around the time um, that um, this big event was happening. Um, a defense which, which our first guest um, said defined the 80s, a day which defined a, dec a decade, and that, of course, that event was Live Aid. Um, and our first guest is 
Dylan Jones OBE. Please welcome Mr. Jones. Look how hot you look. That is him. Well, I don't know. Is you, yeah, look. No, I'm not saying you don't look hot now. Be happy high status. I can say that you were hot then and still hot now. It's a very good look. Those, that is Dylan. Yes! It's them you want to talk to. <laughs> it's Eleanor Mills of the Sunday Times that you want to, have a, that you want to have, a, have a bit of a go at at this point. But they also are kind of quite Simon Cowell-ish, those trousers, quite high. You think so? And um, very hot. Were you wearing fake tan? No. Was that a real tan? Yeah, for sure. I thought, I thought fake tan was invented in the 80s along with um, Thatcherism and everything else. But um, <laughs> anyway, let's start off by talking about this kind of incredible day. Um, what happened to you that day? What, you know, what, what was your life like um, at the time that, that it happened? Uh, you I were was in the audience, right? Uh, I was in the audience. I wasn't on stage, yeah. Um, I was editing a, ma a magazine called ID, um, which is still around, which was one of the... Uh, first style magazines in 1980, three magazines launched in the space of three months, which uh, went, to, went on to define the decade. There was ID, The Face, and Blitz magazine, all of which launched in the first three months. Uh, and that's, that's where I was. But I very much went to Live Aid as a punter. The tickets cost £25, but I remember that if you paid £100, that you could be up uh, in the sort of press area yeah. uh, with all the celebrities. But the weird thing about um, Live Aid was that you actually wanted to become part, you, you wanted to be part of the experience. Uh, and even though I was a you know, snotty snile jo journalist who uh, uh, went to nightclubs and expected to get into nightclubs for free and was fantastically annoying, um, actually this was something that you really wanted to experience with, with everyone else. And so who did you go with? Uh, my uh, my fiancé at the time. Uh, a, a woman called Kate, Catherine Flett, who previously worked for the, uh, the Observer. And a pal as well, Ro Robin, Robert? Uh, my friend Robin Derrick, yes, yeah. who we used to work for Vogue. But I remember we, um, uh, we very much wanted to sort of be all around the stadium. Uh, and so we were at the front, in the middle, and there were various it parts. It easy to move around. I mean, there were 70,000 people there, right? Yeah, I mean, it, was, it was fine. I mean, because right. people had got there so early, they were transfixed, they wanted to um, get their little plot, because uh, everybody was, uh, re really wanted to experience uh, the whole thing. But various parts of the day had been designated for sort of food breaks. You know, you knew that when Nick Kershaw came on that you wanted to go and get something to, uh, to <laughs> drink, or um, uh, Howard Jones uh, was another one. Um, but uh, in fact, there was at one point, we were so far away from the stage, uh, it was um, that you too were playing. And um, uh, we were so far away from the stage that my girlfriend thought they were playing in Philadelphia. Because obviously <laughs> they were on the big um, screens. But, uh, so those were the, what were the moments that you didn't want to miss? Or what were the moments that, that you thought would be unmissable, which turned out actually to be quite missable? Well, the, the big part of the day, which I had no interest in watching, Neither, none of us did, was Queen, because Queen were naff, they were old school, they were part of the 70s. Um, they, I had no interest in the Queen thing. Mm. Uh, and I remember they, uh, we were walking away from the front of the stage, uh, and they came on, and you felt drawn to watching them, and then they gave what it turns out to be the, the greatest stadium performance by anyone ever. It was, mm. the, it was so cleverly orchestrated, it was brilliant, a 20 minutes greatest hits, 
which uh, they knew that it was an com incredibly competitive environment. Mm. Uh, in fact, most of the acts who took it seriously knew that because of the huge global audience, um, that it was going to be incredibly competitive. I mean, the biggest global audience today, something like two, mi two billion people? Still, yeah. Still still the the biggest. Is it still the biggest? Yeah. Really? It's amazing. The Olympics didn't know Olympics has beaten that. So still, I don't think so, so, no. Okay, amazing. So, sorry, go on. No, you carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you were, you were there and you, you, you watched Queen and, in fact, they were fantastic, right? Yeah, it was, uh, and, and actually, it's, you watch it now on YouTube, uh, and it's such a finely calibrated performance. It's the, uh, Freddie Mercury, who, as I say previously, I had no interest in, mm. um, you could tell that he was, was the greatest performer of, of, of his time. Okay. And was there anybody who disappointed you that day? Um, but lots of people didn't. The weird thing was that it was the Heritage Acts which really worked. Um, lots of the 80s groups, the groups that we'd grown up with, um, didn't really work because they were playing on a stage in an environment that they weren't really familiar with because they were used to be playing in smaller venues. But um, it was the David Bowies, the Elton Johns, the Queens, the Paul McCartney, all the Heritage Acts. Um, I'm sure they didn't think of themselves as heritage acts. Well, it's quite funny. They probably I'm a heritage didn't. Act. Yeah. They, were, they were probably only in their 30s and early 40s yeah. at the yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I didn't actually know until I read the book that you two. I mean, I always think of them as being kind of big stadium-filling band, but but they weren't at that point. They didn't have that kind of profile until until they went off stage. And I thought that was a really interesting example of one of the things that, that you say in your book had changed that day. Well, they were winners and losers, and they were very much winners because mm. they benefited enormously from the exposure. Uh, all their albums climbed the charts. And I think there was... Because Bono very much wanted a television moment, he knew that it wasn't going to be enough just to go on stage and perform. Mm -hmm. uh, and he came up with the idea of dragging this girl up from the stage. And it was premeditated. And I suppose it was cynical in a way. But it worked completely, e even though the group thought that he'd done something fantastically stupid right. by uh, um, walking down into the crowd so they couldn't play their final song. Um, it actually created such a buzz uh, and turned them into global superstars in the space of 22 minutes. And it did also change um, that, that kind of touring profile as well, didn't it? I mean, people started to think if you couldn't fill a stadium, if you couldn't fill a Wembley or, a, or a whatever the stadium was in Philadelphia, you know, people, the, 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 the goals shifted, if you like, for that kind of entertainment. Yeah, after that, that became benchmark and everybody wanted to play stadiums. So suddenly Madonna was playing Wembley Stadium, Michael Jackson was playing Wembley Stadium, mm. ne neither of whom were any good because they weren't suitable for that sort of prints coming, etc. So it yes, it completely tiny. changed the dynamic. Yeah. Um, and what else changed that day, do you think? What changed um, culturally after, after that point in the middle of the decade? Well, the 80s is a much maligned decade. It's meant to be the decade of um, divisive politics, bad pop music, stupid clothes, the decade of style over content, the lifestyle decade. Um, and actually, the, the, the reason I wanted to, to focus on Live Aid, because it's very much a sort of macro-micro book, mm. is because Live Aid was an event that shouldn't really have happened in the 80s. It should have happened in the 60s or the 70s. Um, but it was one of the greatest... It was sort of like the apotheosis of the entertainment industry, really. Um, 
where you had all of these extraordinarily popular uh, groups coming together for one particular cause. I mean, one of the men who was responsible for it is here tonight, Harvey Goldsmith. I mean, it's actually an extraordinary um, event. But I wanted to try and tell the story of the 80s through that event because it was such an unlikely uh, pitch point of the decade. I mean, it's interesting that one of the, one of the, one of the key themes running through this, week, this weekend, this few days, is the individuality in a mass age. And it seems to me like this is an event that's all about, you know, if you think about all those people lined up backstage, all vying competitively to be the best, but also to contribute to a much larger experience, it does seem to be the kind of embodiment of those tensions. And also, it's uh, in a way, I mean, when the book came out last year, people, uh, a lot of people said, well, what would Live Aid be like if, uh, if it happened today? I mean, there was Live Aid 10 years ago, mm. um, and that seemed to work. It, had, it still had enough traction, the idea of doing something on a global scale. But in this age of social media, I don't think something like Live Aid would work at all because everyone has a voice these days, everyone can communicate, and to do something on that scale uh, has been diminished by everyone's ability to talk to everyone in every part of the globe all the time. So there would be sort of one person in the stadium and everybody else would be tweeting about it, is essentially... Well, exactly, yeah. What, what, yeah. What, might actually be, <laughs> what might actually be what might be happening. Um, and um, there's an interesting bit in the book that you talk about, Peter York, who, who is on later, um, you mentioned him several times in the book, and you talk about Bob Geldof having been to um, a launch of Peter's and that having had a particular impact on him at the same time as, or reading between the lines at the same time as having seen well, the pictures. It was the launch of Peter's Modern Times book, which was at the end of 84. And that, and it was filmed for a, uh, an arena, um, a quasi documentary called Ligmalion, which was about uh, making your way through trendy London. Whoever uh, thought of that title should be slapped. Um, so hard, terrible fun. It wasn't you. It I'm was. Just yeah, but thank yeah. you. Um, Jesus. And uh, and Geldof actually caught on film, telling people about this extraordinary really? Michael Burke film that he's seen on uh, BBC Six O'clock News. Uh -huh. uh, and so it's there, the very moment that he starts communicating this to everyone, and actually not hardly anyone's interested, um, because it was a very unlikely place for him to espouse those sort of ideas, which is one of the reasons uh, Live Aid was so e extraordinary anyway, the, the way it managed to harness all this emotion in this supposedly facile um, world of entertainment. Do you think it made people feel better about, about you know, the way they were behaving in the 80s? Do you think it gave them an opportunity yeah, of course to it kind did. of... Yeah. And I, I think that uh, that's one of the reasons um, that Live Aid has uh, been criticised a lot, I think, particularly from the left. Um, because it, it did give people a self of, uh, it, it did give people a, a sense of well-being, um, but it was completely justified. Yeah. I mean, it worked. Yeah. What were your politics at that time? Mm, uh, I was. Well, the weird thing is, in the early eighties, I mean, we were we were Thatcher's children in a way. I think that if we'd have been called that at the time, we would have found the idea abhorrent. But. Mm. This is an idea that, that, that grew out of the DIY ethos of, of punk rock, which I was heavily involved in. And the early 80s was all about doing it for yourself because no one had any money. Um, and we were starting magazines, we were starting nightclubs, we were starting fashion labels, um, uh, record labels, advertising agencies, um, mm. pe people you knew were suddenly pop stars. Um, so everyone was... 
had a, some sort of entre, entrepreneurial spirit. And, and this wasn't just in London, this was in Manchester, in Sheffield, all over the place there was a real sense of, of um, uh, sort of, uh, not fiddling whilst Rome burned, but you knew that no one was going to help you, so mm. you got up and helped yourself. So that, I mean, that is what you were, what you were doing, but how were you thinking, how were you voting I was, I remember being, I, I, I suppose I was 19, 20, fairly apolitical, but I was surrounded by um, people who were obsessively, rabidly left-wing. Um, you weren't really allowed to be anything else if you were a student at mm. the end of the 70s and the early 80s. So I always felt slightly removed from that because uh, I, I always thought that... Um, like most l leaders, Thatcher did some wonderful things and some mm. appalling things. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was writ large in her case, but uh, yeah, I was, I was fairly apolitical at the time. Okay. Um, looking back now, I think one of the things that's really interesting is you talk about the fact that both Blair and Cameron watched that concert um, and it both kind of impacted them in different ways. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think that was a very interesting part of your book. Well, um, David Cameron in particular uh, and Steve Hilton were, were uh, very interested in the idea of Live Aid because it was, I mean, in many ways, it was an, uh, an example of the big society, um, uh, an idea that was very quickly parked by the coalition. But uh, it was that sense that you could uh, harness emotion, power for the common good that didn't have to involve the state. Mm. An interesting. And so I'm going to take, by the way, for each person, two questions. Um, so if you want to shoot your hands up very quickly, now is the time to ask them. Two questions for Don. One from the man on the steps. Go. Yes. Um, just is going back to your, your idea about Lyman, how, how do you see the music industry changing now? You've got people like um, Prince, Kate Bush, moving to smaller venues, mainly in West London, um, it's kind of the, the complete opposite of, of that kind of live-aid idea. Do you think that that's, that's sustainable, and how do you think that the, the music industry is changing to meet the kind of modern world? I think that the, uh, the fact that music is considered to be worthless by so many people, both in and outside the music industry, uh, that the only way to actually connect with people is, is to have those, those small experiences mm. uh, because music has been devalued so much. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, that, that the music industry has kind of led the way and you see books going a similar sort of way where people want to spend time with authors and have kind of, you know, contact and feel like... It's true. It's, something it's, don't, it's, you know. it's the Waterstones experience. I mean, the awful thing about going into Waterstones is that I want to, I want to be served by people who know more than I do and that doesn't happen anymore. Mm. And that's very, very sad. Yeah, no, that is true. Although I will say I'm the Scottish Speaker of the Months and Waterstones and I love them very much as a chain. <laughs> <laughs> just thought I'd mention that. Uh, another, another question, there was one more hand and I couldn't see where it was. Yes, it was you, sorry. Hello. Can I just respond to that question? <laughs> um, the true facts about artists playing big venues and small venues is that you cannot, and I've had this long debate around that time with Queen, Purely and simply, you just cannot go back and play the same venue year after year. And so, with a lot of artists, after they've conquered, have gone from small club venues to theatres to arenas and then finding to stadia, um, 
even they need a reality check. So for them to go back down, and with three, for example, following um, the live aid experience, um, I persuaded them to do a tour of ballrooms with just a few spotlights or whatever. And then they came back and played two shows at Network, which were twice the size of Wembley Stadium. So with people like Kate Bush is a, a peculiarity, because Kate Bush is a... That is true. Speaking of excitement levels, there was a lot in your book about the drugs backstage at Live Aid. I was quite surprised by that. I thought it was a charity. That's Should, is that is that is that bullshit? You were there, so you were. Talking shit. I believe you. I believe. I believe. I believe everything. I believe everything. Please thank Dylan Jones. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay. So uh, next up um, is, uh, is, our, is our rose between two thorns, um, which is how I promised I would introduce Rachel Johnson. Um, Rachel Johnson was 15 years old uh, when, this, when this decade dawned, um, and I want to invite her up now to reflect on that time in her life. Rachel Johnson, thank you very much. I think you should be so careful how you sit in that dress. I know, I was worried. I didn't realize we were gonna be on stools, Damien. No upskirt, anyone? All right? Sharon Stone, anyone? Any, any sign anyone? of that from the back row? Three I people are crying on the back row. I can see them Already. crying no, with joy. Um, you, I wanted oh, to hear up, what Dylan... I wanted to ask you, Dylan, what were you doing in that picture? He's not, I think he's modelling, I think. Or he's certainly got a blue steel face, anyway. Is it Vivian Westwood? What are you modelling? Who are you modelling? I hate... Here you okay. are. Look, spot the Rachel. Amazing. Should we talk about the pictures yes, that you talked about, about yours? No, it, it, who's happening? What's happening here? Okay. That was taken before I went to see Stiff Little Fingers at the Lyceum with my best friend, Kate Breakspear. And at the Lyceum, I picked up my first ever boyfriend, who was a Mohican from Billericay. <laughs> and after the gig, uh, I somehow rather we managed, despite not being on Twitter or Instagram or having mobile phones, we managed to find each other the following week. And things moved on fairly, at a fair lick after that. And my father was a Euro MP, and he had made the mistake of giving me his keys to his bachelor flat in Maida Vale. So I took the opportunity, while he was in Strasbourg, to take Aldo back to the flat, because I thought my father was, the parliament was in session. Unfortunately, <laughs> as things were progressing oh. in the flat, my father came in <gasps> and had the presence of mind. Remember that Aldo was a Mohican, okay? So we heard the key in the lock. Aldo was six foot seven or something, terribly good looking, at, made music videos 
and became very well known for it, Alva, Aldo Sodani. And then I Googled him, and I found out he died, because I kept on finding these, these are songs for Aldo. Anyway, so my father walked in, found his daughter in Medias Reyes, and just looked at Aldo, who managed to stand up to greet my father standing, and my father just went, how? <laughs> <laughs> that picture, I was 15. So the 80s bookended my sexual career. I was 15 in 1980. I thought that was a girl in that picture with you. That is, it is a girl. Oh, that is a girl. That's oh. not Aldo. That's oh. not the Mohican. Okay. So, oh. So in 1980, I was 15. In right. 1990, I'd met my husband, and I had my first child quite soon after that. So the 80s were my sexual, and I should also say my professional peak. <laughs> and, um, but that picture is, I can't read, it's my mother's writing, and I think I what it says Alexander. is, it says Alexander's 18th birthday, 17-6, well actually, so this is June when Boris was 18, I can't work that out because I can't do math. But anyway, that's at Eton on my brother's 18th birthday, and we're sitting there as a family, joyous family occasion, as you can see. <laughs> And I know you'll want to say, and um, what did I give Boris for his 18th birthday? Well, the answer to that question is, I always, what we do is we exchange the same present between us every, every year. And it happens to be a John Bull brew your own beer kit. <laughs> Not the entire thing. We didn't realize when we first started exchanging the present that you didn't just need the powder, you need a whole kind of you know, home brew, yeah. a factory, yes. basically. But we've been exchanging the, the, the jar. It must be, is it yeast? It must be nasty <laughs> by now. Who knows? Yeah. It's, it's so old that the label is completely discovered. It's the same thing yeah. each year. That's yeah, but easy. much treasured, obviously. So is that you in that picture? That's then? me looking like something out of banana You look about 50 years old. I mean, I, I can't... You know, <laughs> no, but the hair is... No, but it's fair. I mean, like, you know, it's... You look, I had a massive quiff. Maybe because you're so unhappy. I had suddenly. a massive quiff, and I think I dyed it brown. Yeah. I think I was trying to differentiate. A lot had changed okay. hair-wise okay. between okay. there and then. Um, and, now, oh, no. and also the shoulder pads were amazing. I don't know which one I'm in. The shoulder pads are um, very special. Is I that a man's jacket or is could that? Be, could, could be, could be. Could be. So one of the things that you got up to then um, was that you wrote very precociously, you wrote and commissioned this book, which I bet you thought had been forgotten by the That's mess one of time, of the but hasn't. That is literally the um, least influential book in the whole the, world. The Oxford mess. So um, tell us about that and that time in, in your life. Well, Francis, it's an essay by Francis you, Ween, apparently. It's long out of print. I mean, it's, I, we did this 30 years ago. Um, Francis Ween is stockpiling copies of the Oxford myth. He says, in case Boris ever met, makes it to Downing Street, and then he's going to distribute it. Because <laughs> in it, I have to say, I think, with some prescience, I, I got... This is Toby Young's first published work, Boris Johnson's first published work. Someone called, Anyway, the only person who doesn't make it into this book virtually is um, the one essay I spiked. And who... Who that? pray, you beg, who you beg. Who did you not... Who did you, who wait, did so did I, you commission the piece, read the piece, spike? and then spike him? Cameron. Oh, no, it's, I wish it was Cameron, but it That's wasn't Cameron. Cameron was in the year <laughs> below. And can I just say, on the record, none of us had... None of us knew who David Cameron was, did, did we? He, I don't he think passed, that's changed that much for some people. He completely unremarked through the 80s, didn't he? OK. Um, the one essay I... Can we all remember that at this point, we didn't have word processors? I think one person had an Amstrad in the whole of Oxford. So I seem to remember when I commissioned this book, which was commissioned at the death of Olivia Channon, who was the daughter of a cabinet minister. 
Okay? So I, I went down to my pigeonhole one morning, and there was this note in the pigeonhole saying, please call George Weidenfeld. So I went to the tele... You know, you get a, when you go to a call box, you ring Weidenfeld Nicholson. He says, will you have lunch in London next week? So I go up to London. He says, will you do a book of essays about Oxford? I said, of course I'll do a book of essays about Oxford. Tina Brown had come over from America in the wake of Olivia Channon's death and was snooping around to do something for... What would it have been? S Tina Vanity Fair. Fair. No, yeah. So Fair. she was there, and I actually had lunch with her um, at, what was that restaurant called? French restaurant, Bon Bouche, I can't remember, anyway. So she was there sort of, you know, trying to get everyone to download everything so she could get a marvellous piece of, in Vanity Fair. But mm. I got this book out of it, mm. and I immediately commissioned Boris, Toby, Aidan Hartley, who's quite a good author, very good author, actually. Also, a, a man who I'd sat next to, and I knew quite well, at... Um, and he'd made me laugh like a drain at a dinner party. And I thought, if I ever have to do anything, I'm going to get him to, to write. And it was somebody called Neil Ferguson. <laughs> anyway, I asked him to write a book about love, you know, the a academic life. Chapter, yeah. No, it's a long, it's like 4,000, 4, 5,000 words. Yeah. And his was his banged into my pigeonhole, handwritten by Neil Ferguson. And um, I remember reading it and thinking, this is quite worthy, and I sort of, because we didn't have Amstrads, I basically, I had to annotate it with a pencil, and then I popped it back into Pigeon Post, so it arrived back wherever he was, I can't remember what college he was, and um, about three days later, I, I looked in my pigeonhole, and I found a missive from Neil Ferguson, and I basically said, I like it, but it needs to be more jolly, kind of thing. <laughs> Not the thing you say to Neil Ferguson. Because what happened was, I said, dear Rachel Johnson, fuck off, Neil Ferguson. <laughs> anyway, the, the story goes on and on, because in the end, he asked to review it, and he reviewed it under a different name. But bygones... <laughs> You haven't commissioned him since then in any any. No, capacity, but I did but notice that he had put a... I did, in fact, write this... You know, we, we like our material, we writers, and we recycle it. And I did, in the end, the 25th anniversary of this book, I was asked to do a piece for The Telegraph, and I looked at his website, and he'd actually put it up on his website. He had not. Yeah, he had. Oh, my God. Right, that's that. The Oxford so, myth. Well, at the end of it, um, well, your chapter comes at the end, and you write oh. mainly about sex in that chapter. Well, I mean, everyone else had taken the good subjects. It was like when I was working for Eleanor on the Sunday Times, <laughs> when she would give the good subjects to Simon Jenkins, and then Michael Portillo, or, or Indian Knight, and I was left with, can you write about the new, you know, nanny tax or something? <laughs> so I, was en I ended up writing about sex. Well, well, I mean, actually. it's quite a fertile area in, in many ways, and you <laughs> clearly were... Having, I didn't even think how good that was until I'd said it. <laughs> um, you were having a good time, but it was interesting talking. I mean, you use the word homosexual in the book, which makes it seem so historical to me. Um, it's like a, it's like a merchant ivory piece, you know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, um, I'm, I'm and, quite. No, but yeah. it's kind of it's kind of amazing that it's not really so long ago, and yet. We were talking about it earlier. A lot has changed. How much has changed and how well, much hasn't forget, changed? I wonder. I went for those to people. Oxford in '84. Yeah. Brideshead came out in 1981, mm. and you know, Brideshead was that. You know, the homosexuality in Brideshead was still very opaque, and it was sort of, mm. you know, not very explicit, was it? No. And so when I got to Oxford, it was obviously out there, yeah. but. 
You know, we weren't the golden age. You know, the 1981 was the golden age of Oxford. Probably you, Marianne. Yeah. And um, she's not Nigella. She's like, yes, Nigella, I was the age. Yes, yes, yes. We were. We we weren't that. Groovy. Doesn't every age think it's the golden age? No, isn't, we isn't didn't. That, you didn't. We think knew you we were, were like Dylan said. We were Thatcher's children, and we were uni We were very uniform. There wasn't much individuality in the Thatcherite age. Was the whole point of it that that you should be? I mean, or were you resisting? Be individual. Yeah, or yeah, uniform? be individual. It was a cat. We had a milk round. It was a cattle market. I mean, the, the clubs were called things like the meat market. Um, mm. I can't really. Um, everybody seemed to want to do the same things. It was either banking in the city or the or media. Mm -hmm. And the, obviously, my friends who are bankers are, you know, doing have done very well. Most have retired. Um, whereas we carry on, mm. don't we? <laughs> you know. But I, w I, wonder if you, I wonder if you think how much attitudes... I mean, have they changed, do you think, beyond recognition at Oxford since you were there? Christ, I wouldn't sex? know. I mean, it's so long ago. OK. okay. I, I mean, I hope they're all much more individual than we were. Mm. But we were very Thatcherite. We weren't very experimental at all. I mean, I think experimentation was killed when Hugh Grant did that film called Privilege. Everyone just decided not to do anything creative after that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take two questions for Rachel. Come on. Oh, no, no, they've got questions. They're just thinking about how clever they can make themselves sound. <laughs> Who wants to go? Otherwise, I'll tell you how to do a homebrew with only the cut jar. I will ask you, actually, because we were talking about it earlier, about... What? I didn't mention your novels in the introduction, but... Which one? Your novels. Novels. Oh, yeah. There is another one coming. In the works. In the works. Yes. Yes. Nearly we there. We're it. not going to talk we about it. We don't talk about anymore. it. It's too painful. It's, yeah, that it's is the case painful. of novels. Lady there. We've got, well, we've got another one. And a lady there. That's a good question. Thank you. Yeah. But she feels very validated. I don't know now. any undergrads. No, I mean from your touch. Yeah. Oh, I from see. Your, Looking from your back. Peer group. God. Yeah. Would you do who now, Ferguson? Who can I now? suck up to in the audience? Hands up, everybody. Who was there? No, there were a few women. Allegra, Mostino, and Susan Hitch. I don't know. I'd have to think about it. She would get Plenty. back to you about that one. Yeah. Lady there, yes. These pictures. I had no awareness whatsoever of um, anything like food poverty. What I was aware of was the miners' strike. I mean, because oh, even old Etonians would be shaking a jar and saying, you know, my pay, stump up for the miners. And then we had the workers in Cowley going on strike. But I mean, I, I wasn't, I don't think I was very socially aware in answer to that. Um, I, I think it's interesting for me. Um, uh, having written a, a book which is very much, a, you know, I had a childhood that did feature food poverty, for example. Um, and, you know, you, you know, for me, the, the 80s, people look back on it and talk about this period of great riches and excess mm. and good is good and all the rest of it. You know, my, my experience of privatisation wasn't making money from shares. It was that our gas meter ran out and you, and you were cold. And that was kind mm. of it. Um, and I'm not, you know, playing a violin of great sadness because I'm here and I'm happy and it's fine. Um, but I do think that it is very interesting. That, was that your family on benefit? 
it. Of course they were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, my mum my mom had been very ill, and she 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 couldn't work anymore. Mm. My dad was a steel worker. And he lost his job. I don't want to spoil the end of the book for you, but oh, no. yeah, but yeah. but but um, but um, he's reading it to me in bed, by the way. I am. We're sharing I a am. flat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, he yeah he was a steel worker at, at, at the Ravenscraig Steel Plant, which yeah which which you know about, which was the biggest and most productive steel works in Europe. And um, it was incredible how much it affected the area where we lived. It wasn't just where people worked. Every yeah. night we had the second sunset um, where, I, where I was, where the steel furnaces emptied out and it was red and white and orange and you could read in bed at night. Um, it was that bright and it was incredible. And it went and he went, you know, his job went with it. And so, you know, we were plunged into a decade of poverty. Um, and that area and those areas mm. are still just emerging from that. Um, I think, you know, I think that's... Mm. And I wanted to write about it because the steelworks is gone, the towers have gone. And when I went back there, I was lost because I couldn't actually navigate. And I thought, wow, I can't find my way through my own path. Because you were past. looking for the towers. Yeah, I was looking for these towers and they're gone. And, um, and I thought, I must write about it. I must, for the people who don't know that we used to have two sunsets, I must write about mm. it. And I'm glad that I did. Um, but but, but I, I haven't seen your programme yet, but I'm really interested to see it, because I think that people, people do need to know. Uh, no, but people, people, do, people do need to understand that there are still people who are hungry in this country. And I was the person country. to That's tell everybody, you know. obviously. Yeah. Charlie Burgess. Charlie Burgess is the question, and it's our last one. Has the Arga gone out? I is don't, this, is a this a metaphor? Is, that a, is this back to sex again? <laughs> Are you asking about the menopause? I don't understand. <laughs> the arg is on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know what he's talking about, do you? No, I think Charlie, does Charlie know I've actually got not one but two argers? I'm a two arger. You're a two arger? I'm a, a two arger woman. Yeah, yeah. seriously. Who else has got it's two like, Argos in here? I just want to, this is, a, we're going to have to hustle you off as much as I would love and for And I'd like to, to say one thing, talking. which is that Damien's book is sublime and you've all got to oh, buy it and read it. Thank you very much and thank you for being thank so you. good. Thank you. Okay. Um, our final guest, don't shuffle, don't shuffle. Our final guest um, is, is, is he's 80s royalty, um, in fact, um, which I can say. Um, our final guest is 80s royalty. He has written about the 80s he, um, when, he, when he was in the 80s. Um, he's written about it since. He has reflected on it. He has shaped it. And he is here tonight to talk about it. And he's got a bit of a show and tell. Please welcome the very lovely Peter York. rather perilous, oh. isn't it? It is. I, was, I wasn't sure about the stools. Oh. Look, there's Peter York. Oh. Oh. That's outside Anthony Price. It's a very sharp yeah. look. Man of genius. I'm sure many of you have worn a nice Anthony Price suit. I can, I can see it in you. Baby, Baby blue. blue, yeah. Um, we were discussing earlier who's channeling who in terms of the double-breastedness. Were you channeling Dylan or was Dylan channeling? I'm always channeling Dylan. Of course, of course, of course. Mm. Now, in the introduction to your very marvellous book, you say that the 80s wasn't just a decade. Um, you say that it was a story. And I wanted us to talk a little bit um, about that story. When did it become, start becoming clear to you that this was a very particular or characteristic period? I think when I went to somebody's Docklands flat, my first converted Docklands flat, and I thought, 
God, look what they've done. And they've got bare brick walls, just like in New York. And it's here, at the back of beyond. Ooh, I I want one like this. (laughs) That was my reaction. At that point, I thought, ooh, what a lot is happening. Yeah. What was, what was happening that was catching your eye? What, was, what were you enjoying at that moment? Well, I was enjoying seeing my little friends do stuff that looked incredibly flash on budgets of 30 bob. That was what's so wonderful, that all those things that were heavily criticised at the time mm. as being meretricious, inauthentic, all-surface, etc., was done by people who were living in squats and done very, very cheaply. What stuff are you thinking about? I'm thinking about Blitzworld. Mm. All yeah. that stuff in Blitzworld was done very, very cheaply. So how was that for you then as a kind of a, a participant but also an observer? Um, were, you, were you fully embraced in that time or were you always slightly back kind of looking, looking at it? How engaged were you? Well, I went to those things normally wearing Brooks Brothers, so I didn't get entirely in the get-ups, but there is a wonderful picture of me from a shoot wearing 100% Versace, and I thought, God, this is ghastly, oh. (laughs) And then when I put it on, it was a very expensive kit-up, you know, every single detail. I thought, can I wear it out tonight? (laughs) And I said to the Versace PR, can I wear it out tonight? And so I went, you'll have to take Where did you go? I went to the Hippodrome. And what happened to you? Well, I was the, sin- I was the sinusure of all eyes. It was, oh, my God. It's a wonderful kit. God knows how much it must... In then money, it cost an enormous amount. It was mm. a sort of £2,000 worth of clothes. Mm. Still quite That was money, then. That was... Yes, yes, it was. It is. Um, so t- let's talk a bit about the books that, that, you, that you wrote then. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the, the official Sloan Ranger handbook, which you co-wrote with Anne Barr, um, which, by the way, is my mum's name. And people often say to me in journalism, oh, you must be related to Anne Barr. And I'm like, no, no, no. I think, do you see, you know that wonderful sociological phenomenon called sunken middle class? Dame, well, you should. It's absolutely fundamental. Well, you think Damien is sunken upper middle class. <laughs> I've fallen further. I quite like that idea. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, about that whole phenomenon, because to me, um, you know, growing up where I was and at great distance, it seemed incredibly English. And it was only years later that I actually found the book. I was living briefly in Putney, of all places, with a very racist landlady. Um, <laughs> and um, and she, was, she was Irish, and she really liked white South Africans, really, really liked them. So me and my boyfriend were living in a house full of white South Africans, um, and we weren't allowed to share a bed. Um, but um, anyway, um, that's by the by. Um, that's the second book. Um, and in the house, I found the official Sloan Ranger oh. hand- book in Putney. Um, not, it wasn't walked by one of those people. And I was completely enchanted by it. And I remember spending a summer um, with it and then going out and spotting. Because they're still there. I mean, they haven't left Putney. Um, and um, I wonder if you could talk about that moment in time, if you knew exactly how significant that book was going to be. I knew... Well, uh, I was working on Harpers and Queen then. Yes, you were the... Now called Bazaar because it's become internationally harmonised as a brand. But then it was a, a, a fantastically mad bit of branding because it was the combination of a, a Victorian social magazine, Queen, and the American 
high-gloss fashion title, Bazaar, and it ended up as a magazine which was very, very good for writers because of Anne Barr, mm. because Anne Barr sort of smuggled them in. So in Harper's and Queen, you got the entirety of Tom Wolfe's The Painted Word, 12,000 words of The Painted Word. Nobody would be... Bizarre now wouldn't run anything like that. Mm. Too long, mm. low attention spans. Amazing. And so you were the style editor for... I, that's what I was called. I so don't know what, what you actually do. I, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> Ten uh, years of his life, don't yes. know. No, don't know. I mean, it was, it was a glorification of being, do you know, just being a sort of columnist, of being a sort of contributor, feature writer, columnist. Oh. And they said, what do you want to be called? And I had a moment. I had an epiphanic moment, and I thought, I'm going to be style editor. Of course... And then after that, everybody was a style editor. So and were you now the first it was style editor. Were you the first? I to think I was. Have that title. Yes, I invented the title, and now it means third assistant on Grazia. <laughs> <laughs> if the third assistant on Grazia, no, I'm not. She's not going to be here. And so, how do you feel? Just thinking back to Dylan's uh, book at the, at the beginning, how do you feel about being, you know, res responsible in some ways for for life aid? Well, it's a heavy burden to bear. But uh, do you know the, the, the full story goes that um, Bob, St. Bob, had seen the ghastly pictures from Ethiopia that afternoon. And then that evening, he'd come to my book launch. And he thought it was disgusting and decadent and terrible. And the contrast between the two would allegedly provoke him... <laughs> into Live Aid. So, do you know, that's like hit the my role in his downfall. You saved all those people. You yes. Know, yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's too good. Um, in Dylan's book, one of the things he said, one of the few things he said that I didn't agree with was um, he said that it was, a, it was an anorexia of language because he talked about the abundance of the term cool, the preponderance of that term. Um, but then went on to talk about um, the, the term, some of the terms that you'd introduced. And not yuppie, but things that I didn't know, like buppies and poopies. Am I saying it right? Poopies? I didn't invent any of those. Oh, you didn't? No, I, I thought I, the buppy I, was yours. No, it's... Uh, it, it's uh, it's a brand extension of Yuppie, okay. which was... An, I wish I'd invented Yuppie. What a brilliant insight Yuppie right. was. But it was invented by a pair of American lady writers. Well, there is some debate about who, did, who invented that term, Yuppie. Because there, 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 were, there were two books which seemed identical by pairs of American lady writers, so yeah. often the case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and did you, would, would you have self-identified as, as a yuppie at that point? Or would people looking at you have thought, he's a yuppie? Was that I that? think when you're the person in a railway carriage who's an early adopter of the mobile phone and you're shouting on the mobile phone, and let's say it's 84, 85, and a deputation of people in that carriage come and tell you to shut up with their faces white <laughs> with dislike because they'd read about these yuppie people and they presumed that I was like that. And, of course, I was. <laughs> yes. 
You owned it, that's fine. I like that you at least did that. And um, we started off by talking a little bit about the story and, you, and seeing about Chantel. Can you show us some of the things, the yes, items in your- Yes, they're lovely. Your sack machine. They're lovely, you'll love these. Now, Dylan will instantly recognize this. What about the rest of you? Were you heavy Heaven 17 abusers, for instance? <laughs> and this is magic because it's got all the pretensions and tropes of the period with absolutely zilch technology. You know, here are people, this is a very early approximation of Yuppie, and of course, it's gone a bit wrong because they've got my little ponytails. And, and they were from Sheffield. How wonderful is that? ABC were also from Sheffield, and so were Human League. And there they are, and you know, there's, a, there's a mixing desk, and they're being ironic executives. And it's absolutely poignant, and it was done in 1981. How early is that? I'd have put my special specs on. The titles are quite interesting. We don't need this fascist, this fascist groove thing. No, we don't need this fascist groove thing. Um, Penthouse and Pavement, Play to Win, Soul Warfare, Geisha Boys and Temple Girls, Let's All Make a Bomb, The Height of the Fighting, Song with No Name, we're going to live for a very long time. Well, of course, a lot of those people did live for a very long time and are now running the world, of course. I don't know about them. And it says, Heaven 17, Sheffield, Edinburgh, London. So there was quite a lot of provincial energy then. <laughs> Before London utterly ruled the world. Um, it's interesting you talk about that in the 80s, and, and, and Dylan says this, you know, in the early 80s, very different from the late 80s. My 80s, all I can think of for music is, is Kylie and Madonna and Big Fun and Stalkaking and Waterman, basically. Like, you know, sorry? The Clash, no, I never listened to The Clash. I think maybe that music made me gay, anyway. Clash was 70s, really. Their, their absolute golden age was the 70s, as in, you know, White Man in Hammersmith Palais and all those sorts of things were 70s. What else is here? Paul Young. Paul Young, long before Common People, the love of the Common People, which was an old um, Caribbean track reworked. God, it was lovely. And he could sing up a storm and look at his hair. Um, this is shiny, shiny, and it's hazy fantasy. Absolutely, people of the age. I mean, nothing brings it back like a vinyl cover. Wham, young guns, go for it. I've no idea who these people were. Um, it's like, they're, they're, but they've got hairstyles. They're not quite as, a, the great hairstyle band of all time was Flock of Seagulls. If you yeah, remember yeah. Flock of Seagulls, how did he do it? And most haunting, wonderful, evocative bit of music, Love is a Stranger in an Open Car. Love is a Stranger in an Open Car. What, what stroke of genius that was. And so thinking about nostalgia, um, do, you, do you miss that? 
time? I mean, are these things that you kind of sort of revel in, or do you think, oh, that was then, and you've kind of shelved it? Or are you kind of dancing around your flat listening to that of a, of a of Friday? Course. On a constant basis. Um, no, I never, listened to, I never listen to music now. I've got no interest in music at all. I just stopped. I never, you know, turned the dial, never listened to a music station, hardly accessed any music since then. There, that's a, now there's a lovely book. The, the hard, this is the, the book that launched Live Aid, accidentally. Um, and the hardcover was, I had a much, much nicer cover because it was a sort of Mondrian knockoff, an ironic Mondrian with the Queen Mother in the corner. How's right. that? Um, I asked you when we were talking before what you were reading in the 80s. I know we know what you were wearing. There was obviously the, there was the full Versace moment, there was this moment. We know a bit about what you were listening to. But what, what, what were you reading then? I was mainly reading books that I'd bought in America in those great Fifth Avenue bookshops where, before we did it, before Waterstones did it, they put out books in tempting piles on tables. That was the most wonderful thing. When I went to New York, I just bought a lot of books. Mm. Most of them said how-to in the title. <laughs> and I loved that sort of book because we weren't how-to'd up enough. <laughs> and I learned how-to. I love that. It's back to Dylan's point about doing it, you know, doing it, doing mm. it yourself and, and Rachel too, that kind of Thatcherite thing. Do you remember any of the titles particularly? Are there any that actually left a lasting impact on you or did you just kind of burn through them? I burnt through them. Okay. I'll take two questions. Question there, um, and there's one over here, I think, as well. Yes. Um, uh, Peter, you've spoken of, uh, at the beginning of your talk about people being broke. And um, actually, I'm reminded that John Bakewell was very eloquent about this last night at the Edinburgh Festival. And all Britain's used to be broke. Um, and yet, there's such a cultural ferment is emerging this brokenness. I mean, what you're talking about is pre collage, improvisation, uh, paradoxically, a technological kind of innovation in culture, but low tech. What thoughts do you have on the current generation of <coughs> Yeah. I think. In, in, in this moment. Yeah. I mean, Tremendous use of irony and prefiguring. In other words, you do an ironic prefiguring of what you think it is exciting and on the horizon, but isn't actually there. So you're talking about money and the glory of money, and you've got all sorts of metaphors and um, symbols of money, and yet you haven't got any. So, and there's that great uh, eternal divide. The kids who were making the action, most of them came from very modest backgrounds. Now, apparently, 60% of major musical acts went to public schools. Isn't that an amazing and terrible thing? Mm, mm. Do you know? Because it can't work, can it? Every time you look at the... What's he called? Coldplay. Coldplay. Mr. Yeah. Coldplay. Yeah, you yeah. think, oh... Um, <laughs> I mean... That has to be the most boring act in the universe, doesn't it? <laughs> and he's married to Gwyneth Paltrow. To Goop, to Gwenny. There's a question over here. There was a hand, and I can't remember who it was. OK, you've decided you don't want to ask it. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question, which was, um, if you could go you know, back, back to the 80s, is there anything that you really miss 
um, that was around then or that you did then that you don't do now, aside from, from music? Um, yes, going, going into a room and thinking, blimey, how did you think of that? Uh, you know, where there was a, a total bold disjunction, you know, where you think, it's in my head, but you've brought it out in such a bold and exciting and shiny way. Because, of course, uh, things were shiny. When you, haven't get a, got, when you haven't got any money, you want things to be shiny. When you've got lots of money, you want them to be elaborately drab. <laughs> that seems like a great place to end it. Please thank Peter York. And all three of my guests, Dylan Jones, Rachel Johnson, and Peter York, thank you very much. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ, and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening. <laughs>